If Easter is in two weeks, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And as I looked at what we have left in 1 Peter 5 and at Palm Sunday, uh, I came up with an idea, you can pray, it's a good one. Uh, I want us to look at Peter's closing remarks and through them look uh, in a slightly different way than we are today in looking at Jesus the shepherd who models shepherding for elders and all of us, but then look uh, as a prime example with what Peter learned during his discipleship under Jesus, what Peter learned in the time of the Passion, what Peter learned with the Palm Sunday entry uh, of Jesus that kind of helps us wrap it all together and look at the true grace of God. And I want to do that in a way that I hope uh, if you've got friends, uh, neighbors that you've been thinking of inviting to worship, uh, because we'll really be looking at a real person and a real life uh, and the struggles and failures and successes uh, that led Peter to his wisdom that hopefully would connect uh, with folks no matter where they are. And as we try to say often, we want to be welcoming you and anyone else, uh, regardless of where they are, with grappling with the issues of what life is and, and what it means. So be praying for these upcoming weeks and events as we seek to reach out. But this morning, let's pray as we open God's Word. Father, we honor you. We acknowledge that it's your Word. We acknowledge that we need you and your Word. Would you be the teacher? Would you make Jesus shine? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On being a shepherd and being shepherd, Peter talks about all of that in these first five verses as we prepare for the Lord's table. Two points, shepherds must be shepherded into shepherding. It doesn't just happen. And I think uh, so often we... Uh, at whatever level, um, elect and install and ordain uh, people into office, sometimes as pastors, as ruling elders, and hopefully we try to do a good job in preparation, but we don't think about the fact that uh, it isn't just what we know, it's the wisdom we have and how we are moving forward in our journey to be shepherds. Shepherds must be shepherded into shepherding. Here are these first four verses. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Because this is not just a sermon, but in effect a communion meditation to lead us to the table. I need to be brief on some things, but, but please note that Peter begins in a way, I think, that models everything that he's saying. Uh, uh, it's not wrong when Paul 
uh, plays the apostle card at the beginning of his letters. It's most appropriate and necessary. But it's interesting here that Peter doesn't call himself an apostle, though he certainly is. He says, I'm a fellow elder along with you, the elders that are in uh, the fledgling churches in North Asia Minor to which he writes. And he writes as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the hope that is yet to come, which he's talked about in the earlier chapters. And it's with that he commands those who are elders in these churches to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising their oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So shepherds must be shepherded into shepherding, and they must be shepherded into a willingness to partake in Christ's sufferings. And those of you who are or have been elders of a church, I think we'll understand something of that. A brother I love deeply out in Oklahoma, uh, somebody asked him, he was clerk of our session when I was there, uh, what changed when you were ordained as an elder? And put very simply, what he said was, uh, I, I never went to church and looked at the church the same again. He said, I had no idea how true that was going to be. That in a new way, I bore the weight of what happened and what happens in the church. And as elders grow, they grow into that, which is why we are to encourage them. And, and think about Asia Minor. We don't know a lot, but it's interesting. This is probably a circular letter like some of Paul's that went to many churches, and I don't have time to go into the Greek grammar of the passage, but if we looked at it, I could show you that it's, I think, at least a legitimate interpretation to consider uh, that some of these churches were house churches. They may have been made up of people that were literal exiles, not just because we're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet, but because they'd been chased out of Rome or other places. And so perhaps local bodies and house churches hadn't even gotten to the places of officially ordaining elders yet. But if that's the case, Peter is saying the elders that are among you, those maybe that were elders in churches in Rome, those who show the years, not just in age, but in wisdom, you know, sometimes when people grow old, they don't grow wise. I was chatting with one of you out in the foyer half hour before the service and, and talking about, uh, you know, the fact that as I look back over my decades of ministry now, I don't like thinking how many there have been, uh, the people that have impressed me the most are both women and men who grew more joyful in Jesus the older they got, never soured. Never because they'd seen more darkness even in the church than people younger. Never got cynical. Because they really understood the gospel and how much we need it. And that it's no surprise when there's brokenness even in the church. So I think there's a lot in Peter's words to these elders as well as to the youngers. Uh, we don't know exactly what that term means except that they weren't elders either in the sense of being officers or uh, of having come yet to a stage of life where they realistically were looked at as being wise and experienced in many areas, though still very imperfect. 
and in this area where persecution was growing, uh, uh, to take on the role of shepherding was to take on a personal cost and risk as you dared step into lives and situations when people were being mistreated unjustly that were part of the flock. And even your presence with people as it became known that you were an elder in this group of Christians, whoever this strange new sect was, you could cause hurt to others by daring to minister to them and them being seen with you. It is not simple, and it may become more complicated even here in our culture, in our country. Willing to partake in Christ's sufferings, shepherded into choosing more delight in future glory than present. I've seen a few men over the years who sought office and showed it if they got it uh, because they felt it made them more honorable in the church. Those that have been at it for a while know that uh, it may give them a little bit of honor, but it gives them a lot of blame too. It, it cuts both ways. And there's got to be a willingness if you step into leadership to take the hits. And the only real motivation to not become cynical or bitter that will keep you joyful in Jesus is delighting in what you know is yet to come and that it's worth it all. Because it's then that every man will get the praise of God that he deserves. And ultimately, it's the praise that we get because we're in Jesus. And any crown we get, as Peter talks about a crown here, look at, I think it's Revelation 5, where the 24 elders give their crowns back to Jesus. Because when we get a crown, we know it wouldn't cause us. It's because Jesus made us more like Him. And the elders that Peter addresses know that they themselves are the fulfillment of God's promises. I put these verses, I think, uh, in your outline. If not, uh, you may want to jot them down. No, I don't think I have them there. Uh, Jeremiah 3.15. Jeremiah 3.15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, God promises. Why? Because they had shepherds, Israel had shepherds that didn't seem to be having after God's heart the way that King David was. And even he was so broken. Shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 23.4, 23.4. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. The John 10 passage that we read this morning, the good shepherd cares for his sheep. Eagerness. The passage calls for uh, uh, an eagerness of love, of caring. And eagerness, I think, comes uh, from a love for smelly sheep. I had uh, the first church I was a senior pastor at. I had a lady, actually it was her husband, who told me she wanted to jump over the pew and shake me when I dared to call us smelly sheep. But it comes from a love for smelly sheep and for personal sheepish knowledge that sheep can be made clean, including the under-shepherds. Because we need to be made unclean. I read these words last week in David Pallison, who was head of the Christian Counseling Education Foundation until he died a couple of years ago, um, in his book, The Pastor is Counselor. And 
Uh, don't write yourself off in that title because he sees counseling uh, as pastors and elders training the sheep to have substantive conversations with people and applying the gospel into their lives. And this is the kind of transformation that should take place in us. Uh, Pallison says in the introduction, if you are a good counselor, then you are learning how to sustain with a word the one who is weary. Because you're in the word so much. Not every time, but often scripture will come to mind that with a word you can bring encouragement. Isaiah 54, 50 verse 4. This is wonderful. Nothing less than your Redeemer's skillful love expressed in and through you. You've learned to speak truth in love, conversing in honest, nutritious, constructive, timely, grace-giving ways. That's wisdom. You deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because you know you are more like them than different. Every under-shepherd must know that. We have more in common with the weakest among us than we do with our Lord Jesus, who is our King and our Savior. You don't only do what comes naturally, but have gained the flexibility to be patient. I guess he's saying that patience doesn't come naturally. No, it's a fruit of the Spirit of God when we give ourselves over to God. To be patient with all, to help the weak, to comfort the faint-hearted, to admonish the unruly. What a job. You bring back those who wander just as God brings you back time and again. You're engaged in meeting the most fundamental human need, both giving and receiving encouragement every day. It's the most fundamental human need. That's why you don't have to be a pastor or an elder to shepherd and counselor. You can have ears to, to listen and to encourage with a word instead of to discourage or, or criticize. In becoming a better counselor, you are growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Number five on the front of the outline. Not domineering flows from, hear this, not being domineering over others, whatever the situation in life, business, church, anywhere for a believer, I believe flows from nothing else than the security we have in the arms of Christ Jesus, our shepherd. If I am really secure, and I know my real honor comes in the future, I don't have to be the big man on campus, the head dog in the pack, the domineering, strong, having everything together, senior pastor or pastor or director or elder or anything else. And domineering often flows, therefore, from diminished gospel security. If I lose people's respect, if they think I'm weak, then I won't be in charge in their eyes. If the people are godly and respect God's standards and ways of organizing things, they want to give respect to godly people. And people that both have strengths and are using them, but also know their weaknesses, people will say, that's the kind of person I want to follow. Uh, Howard Hendricks uh, 
I don't know if I've shared this with you, but he, I, I loved a leadership conference I went to on him. He started it and, and boldly said, leaders, Webster says, are those who lead. And everybody laughed, about 500 of us. So simple. And then he said, don't let the simplicity of that fool you. If there are no followers, there is no leader. And I've seen a lot of men over the years that want to lead by being strong and always in control and everything else. And after a while, a lot of them have lost their followers, whether in business or in the church. Leaders must be strong, but strength is defined a different way in the Scriptures. That's why I touched on this passage last week. Let me read it quickly again. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. The Corinthians weren't always happy with Paul. Have you noticed that in 1 and 2 Corinthians? Paul writes, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, because I'm not aware of anything against myself. It is the Lord who judges me. I will be under judgment. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment on me or anybody else. Those words aren't there. Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Discipline, yes, but don't miss that last phrase. He's talking as a believer to believers. Then everyone will receive commendation. Why? Because our commendation is from Jesus, because of Jesus, for Jesus' righteousness, for what He's built into our lives. And yet along the way, and even more so then, we will know how great our weaknesses were. This is not something any elder, pastor, or Christian arrives at. If we follow in Jesus' steps deliberately, we'll often weep again and again at our poor ways of handling our hurts and fears. We'll long to be transformed into healthier spiritual and emotional maturity, to lead with our fellow elders and to learn from respect our fellow believers. As I was seeking to do that in my first senior pastorate in the early 90s, uh, I didn't realize that I really upset some folks in the church when I said to them, uh, you know, one of the things I delight in is that, uh, you know, that was 30-some years ago, so I was a little younger, uh, that some of you in the congregation are more mature than I am spiritually in some areas. I didn't think I was going to upset somebody by saying that. But several people, I found out, really didn't like me saying that at all. And I think it's because of the old saying that we pay the pastor to be good so we can be good for nothing. <laughs> and, and if the pastor takes himself off of his pedestal, all of a sudden we've got to look at ourselves and not just at him. You see, what the pastor does in being king takes away from the discipleship and it lets people off the hook for their discipleship. And it's true here. I have learned much from many of you already. And I continue, both the staff, the elders, some in the congregation that I've been privileged to begin to have conversations with. But the reality is always the need for collaboration and mutual respect. That's the order of the gospel being examples to the flock, being brothers and sisters before we dare to be bosses. And being the ruling 
elders and elders because we are brothers and have been willing to take on a greater weight. Secondly, one more verse. The younger must receive shepherding to become older and wiser. You don't get there without being shepherd. What comes natural isn't becoming wise apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God and others who know you and are willing to speak honestly with you. Likewise, verse 5, Peter says, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And by the way, did you notice that there are four verses about elders and half a verse about youngers? Because the weight's on the elders to help the youngers understand what they need to be and what they need to be like and to do it with humility. So be subject to the elders, but clothe yourselves, all of you, youngers and elders, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. First point under the second heading, both chronological snobbery and failure to see according to the Spirit keep us from delighting in being appropriately subject to elders. Uh, If you are a younger person in our age, you have what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, whether you know it or not. If you've been in the school system the last 20 to 25 years and it's getting worse and worse, you are trained in chronological snobbery. One person said, what is it? It's the assumption that the dominant intellectual fashion of the day makes every mode of thought from the past either suspect or irrelevant. Which basically basically is a proclamation by our culture that there is no wisdom that came before our generation. I want to cry. I'm tempted to become cynical and sarcastic, but I apologize for doing that last week. I should have wept. The cynicism that grew from the Enlightenment's overblown hope in humankind and in reason alone, further elevated by the disaster of World War II, became an excuse to reject what we'd learned from the past and the goodness that was in our institutions to guide us. And it started first in Europe in huge ways, sadly as the church in Germany and the church in France and the church in England foolishly supported the government's stupidity in throwing waves of hundreds of thousands of soldiers into the trenches for a year or two when it simply wasn't working and made it patriotic and for God and country. That's religious sentimentality, not the gospel. It doesn't mean there isn't legitimacy for certain kinds of war, and we don't have time to get into that. But that bled into the states, particularly after the Vietnam War and then all the other social changes. And sadly, this view fails to consider this chronological snobbery. The best of what we've learned in the past may not be the problem. Was it Pogo in the comics who said we have met the enemy and he is us? It's not the lack of wisdom in the past, though imperfections for sure. It's the imperfection in each of us as 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs right down the middle of each one of us. And we can be led to become culturals of evil. Not only is racism systematic as well as individual, sin is systematic. And it gets into cultures to the place where they are so blind to what anybody wise has learned and said before them. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, about seeing with spiritual eyes. Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned and That's why the brightest and best who learned many good things that have helped us so much in the Enlightenment were also blind to anything that would crimp their style and say that humanity by itself can't do what needs to be done. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, therefore, we regard, we evaluate, we honor no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded, honored, evaluated Christ according to the flesh. But we regard him thus no longer, because Christ is the firstborn of the new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so you must learn to evaluate yourselves according to the Spirit and not the flesh, by the new age and not the old age of the flesh. Two, it's unwise. It's an unwise culture, which is a nicer way to say foolish. It's an unwise culture that doesn't honor wisdom been reading in Vern Poitras' new book, Redeeming Our Thinking About History, a God-centered approach. Because the new way of thinking about history says you can't learn anything. Language is power. Everybody that wrote history in their time was using it just for power in their day, and so we need to use it for power to get our way in our way. And our culture is becoming incredibly skillful at dividing people so that nobody can get along which, by the way, this is another subject, but that simply allows those that have the most power to run everything because nobody else can ever unite about anything significant because they're being led and pulled apart. My summary of Poitras' opening chapters is that uh, the younger need to learn from their elders who've learned of God themselves and humanity and learned of the effects of the choices of men and women and nations that have gone before us. One of the bad things about being older is you can become cynical when you see how many bad choices we've made. And thus all the sci-fi movies about aliens wanting to wipe us out because of our foolishness and practical stupidity. You can probably think of a few. I can think of five or six. Even the remakes still tell the same story. One of the good things about being older is that you see the foolish ways that our chronological snobbery, our presentism, the present is better than the past, we're smarter than our forebears, What that leads us to, we forget the best of what we've learned that includes how weak we are and have been regarding what we most desire. I would urge you to do a concordant study of the word wisdom. Spend a couple hours some afternoon and just look at as many verses as you can meditate on that define what wisdom is and in contrast what foolishness is. We honor God by learning the rule of faith, the apostles' teaching, the best of the church's creeds and confessions. Can't go into this in much depth because I want to leave time for communion, but uh, 
the basic reason, the rule of faith is what we can learn from the church fathers, uh, was being taught and summarized in the early church. There's a lot of bunk in uh, New Testament and Old Testament theology that uh, the early believers and authorities made up the teaching of the church from a lot of things that were called Christianity. But if you look at what we can learn from the early church fathers, what we can learn from reading the scriptures, it's very clear that there was a common body of knowledge. Paul summarizes some of it in 1 Corinthians 15. And then if you look at the New Testament letters, just the ones that none of the critics uh, think Paul didn't write, uh, they agree with what we can learn from all that other stuff about what Christians used to judge what was right and wrong, which is basically to say there is a tremendous historical ground. And out of that came the creeds and then the confessions, like our Westminster Confession or the Belgic Confession. You don't have to be a scholar, just thoughtful and aware, to stay in the Scriptures above all, for they judge us and all the summaries. Peter ends the paragraph, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, for one another, toward one another, for God opposes the proud. The older must be humble examples. The younger must focus their zeal and apply it with wisdom. We live in a day when it's hard to shepherd. So pray for not just the elders here who are grappling with both the struggles we've been through and leading in the present and longing for other elders to be raised up alongside them, but pray for elders in all of the churches. When people don't know there's a rule of faith we ought to be living by and are trying to make it up on their own in new ways along with everything else. It's always been that way. Uh, Go read a summary of the sexual practices and mores where the elite men got to domineer and take, you know, any slave, any woman, uh, any boy or girl that they wanted uh, to exercise their free sexuality. Different twist, but same story as what we're seeing in our day. Human pride is at its height. If you want a thoughtful but not scholarly way to read for insight into our present day, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote uh, three science fiction books. They're not nearly as well read, but they ought to be. And the third one is called That Hideous Strength. It's well worth reading out of the silent planet in Paralandra. But if you want to understand what happened with the Enlightenment culture and what happened with the Third Reich's experiments on children medically, Read that hideous strength and in narrative form and a fascinating, wonderful in some ways, tearful in others, shows how common people get led into making decisions that move them away from honoring God with their neighbors. And what the Third Reich did came from Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood and other eugenicists in the U.S. The philosophy, the medicine started here. What do you think led to the forced sterilizations of some minority cultures? What do you think led Planned Parenthood to center their centers in the inner cities focused on certain races and groups that they wanted to purify the culture from? That's American. It's not that we're pure and Germany was evil. That's the cop-out. And today, the U.S. government encouraging the use of irreversible drug therapy and surgery on minors. And I bring this up, please listen very closely as I wrap this up, not to be political in any partisan way, 
but to seek to be a shepherd. And perhaps most folks who see themselves on different sides of these kinds of issues genuinely believe, I believe this, that that they're trying to do good. I believe that. Because people being led to call all kinds of things good without much historical perspective or much knowledge of human nature in the past. The question is one of wisdom and historical perspective. And I want to put that in perspective by moving us to the end by reading a poem by a man I got acquainted with, wish I knew him better when I was in Miami. Ted Smith was the pianist for the Billy Graham Association for over 50 years. Incredible pianist and musician. And he worked on the music for the Hiding Place film, which came from Corey Ten Boom's book. And he got to know Corey. And he wrote this poem dedicated for those who died at Corey's camp in the Holocaust. And it's called Winter of 42. It had something to do with your name. Something to do with your accident of birth. It was official. It was approved. It was the forced wearing of a yellow star. The beginning of an end. A chaos out of order. It was an accusation, an arrest, a camp, an oven, a scream, an efficiency. It was six million. It was official. It was approved. I think we might write an addendum regarding chemical or surgery at surgical attempts on children that change gender. It was government leaders finding leverage for breaking down tradition and future resistance. It was professors desiring to justify their own desires and longing to be the definers of all. It was doctors fearing the power blocks of financial and ethical suppression. It was teachers, tacitly, perhaps blindly, affirming with good intent an undefined self. It was corporate leaders fearing to stand up against the media megaphoned elites. It was Christians living for peace in the present, above the glory yet to be revealed. It was children being subjected to lifelong change. It was children being committed to pathways in which they had no real choice. It was the rule of demigod shepherds. It was official. It was approved. It's hard to shepherd. Brothers and Sisters, I want you to long to come to this table this morning and to know that there is a shepherd who is trustworthy because sometimes the shepherds in the church even haven't been trustworthy if you look at church history. No surprise, if you really believe the gospel, you will know the church is bound to be a mess at times. 
because there are waves of people led, whether for the love of money. I didn't touch on that verse. For wanting standing with others that they think count more than Jesus to them. We are an impure bunch. But we have a shepherd who knows everything and who is not harsh. And who doesn't stop us from thinking. And who doesn't tell us like some today even in our legislatures. Don't read the bill, just vote on it. The Florida bill that's causing great controversy right now. One encouraging thought, let me just throw in, I read a survey that surveyed every possible voter group. And amongst those in every voter group who had actually read the bill, there was 55, 65% approval. But we're in a culture where we are taught not to think, not to question. And we are badgered into not caring enough to ask questions of one another and to love our neighbors instead of being angry and shouting at them and throwing bombs at them over the fence. But we come to a table with a shepherd who will wash our feet and our souls, who feeds us with his own bodily life, who will cleanse us within and without at the cost of his lifeblood, who will love you and has the wisdom to love your soul. Is there such a table? There is. Is there such a shepherd? Thanks be to God there is. May you see in this living picture of doctrine that you need the gospel, I need the gospel more than we have ever dreamed we need it. And without it, the best of us are corrupted over and over and over again. And we can be as blind as anybody we get upset with. Would you come to the table?